Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Brian Kaplan, my colleague here at the Department of Economics at George Mason University. He blogs with Arnold Kling at EconLog, and he is the author of The Myth of the Rational Voter, Why Democracies Choose Bad Policies. Brian, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you for having me, Russ. Brian. It's good demo- to be back. Well, yeah, you're, this is a return appearance for you. Uh, today we're going to talk about your book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, Democracies often pursue some pretty bad policies. When economists and political scientists try and explain bad policies, they usually argue that special interests hijack and subvert the political process. So steel tariffs occur because the benefits to the steel producers are concentrated and the losses to any individual consumer of a refrigerator are so small. So the public at large doesn't really have an incentive to get too worked up over this, may not know all the details. You have a different explanation, though, for bad policies, uh, a rather radical break with the standard views that economists and political scientists have been putting forward over the last couple of decades. Uh, Explain your viewpoint. Right. So I used to believe that public choice story uh, quite well myself, but then I started looking at public opinion data, and I discovered something that few economists seem to realize, which is that policies like the steel tariff are extremely popular. So it is not actually the case that special interests are sneaking things past the voters. In fact, generally, when you pass a steel tariff, what do you do? You have a big press conference saying, we have a steel tariff. We are helping our fellow Americans. We're not going to let foreigners destroy our steel industry. And why do you have a big press conference instead of doing it hush-hush behind closed doors? Because you think you're going to get votes for doing it. Because you want the broader public to realize that you care and that you too share their view that foreign imports are a threat to our country and helping steel is one way to do it. I mean, of course, it's not that special interests don't play a role. Uh, They definitely do, and we can talk about that in greater detail. But my point is that in broad contours, the policies that exist are popular, and special interests really have a much more minor role, not so much as sneaking things past the voters the voters would never tolerate, as saying, look, out of all the things that the voters are are willing to support, what helps us the most? Let's tell them to do that, and let's see whether we can persuade them along the margin, not whether we can actually hang a big albatross around their necks uh, without them noticing. So in this view, democracy, uh, there's sort of, um, there's good news and bad news. The good news is democracy works surprisingly well. Uh, Politicians give voters what they want. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, that's the good news. The bad news is what they want is really often not very good uh, and is detrimental to their health. Uh, That's correct. Yes. So, and in particular, while economists will often then jump to say, well, it's people, you know, people may want things that are bad for society, but they want things that are good for themselves. Uh, but the reality is that policies that economists think are bad are generally popular, not just with the people who benefit with, from them, but from the people who do not. Uh, one of my favorite examples is farm subsidies. Farm subsidies enjoy virtually equal support in farm states and non-farm states. And, you may, and economists, again, are baffled. How could that be? Why would non-farmers support farm subsidies? Uh, well, if you, uh, there's, a, there's a very interesting poll. Let's see, I cite it in my Wall Street Journal piece. I don't remember. I think it was 
might have been a Pew poll. Uh, but in, in any case, uh, they went through a number of reasons why people might support, uh, far, might, might support farm subsidies. Things like, do we need farm subsidies to make sure there's enough food? Very widely agreed to uh, by, and of course, uh, if that's the way that you think markets work, then you might very well say, well, without subsidies, there might not be food. Why wouldn't I support farm subsidies? It seems like it's good for us, good for the farmers, good for the country. Well, let's stick with farm subsidies for a mm-hmm. moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Economists have a slightly different perspective on farm subsidies, see them as wasteful and unnecessary for guaranteeing a, a food supply. We have a very simple counter argument, uh, that, which is that there are a lot of things that aren't subsidized that seem to be plentiful. We don't have a, a shirt subsidy program, and shirts are plentifully available. We have lots of food that isn't subsidized, mm-hmm. uh, that you go into the grocery store, and the supply is stable, and the prices are stable. If anything, they're falling slowly over time, whereas the things that are often subsidized, such as milk, don't see a lot of technological or uh, price improvements. So economists take a different view from the public at large in that case, and yet we don't get listened to. Uh, the puzzle then uh, would be, well, why don't people see this obvious contradiction between uh, what seems to be their worldview, which is farm subsidies are necessary to sustain a stable food supply, and the seeming facts that refute it? Certainly, people would learn from their mistakes like they do in other areas, and we would think that policy would then improve. Right. So there is the, the, the simplest story, when I think there is something to it that most people just haven't thought about it. And there is a fraction of people who, when you point out the contradiction, will change their mind, like, say, me. <laughs> <laughs> I used to think everything that everybody else thinks. And then I started reading economics when I was 17 and began questioning what everyone else had told me. But at the same time, when I was 17 and was learning economics and began haranguing all the people around me that they should change their minds too, I noticed they generally didn't. They did not find convincing the arguments that seemed to make so much sense to me. Now, I will say I was 17, so I probably wasn't all that convincing in any case. But I, I think even if I had put the arguments in the best possible way, a lot of people would not be very interested. Now, one thing I do in the book is try to get at this question, why is it the people will not listen to reason even when you put the facts right in front of them? And a big part of my story is that people generally get some psychological benefits out of believing the world is the way that they, that they like to see it. There's a certain way that they feel comfortable with. It's a way that where they fit in with fit in with the rest of society if they believe the same thing that other people the same things that other people do, and to go and challenge that view would be very painful for them. So the one example of this would be a friend of mine, an economist, who's at a picnic, and he raises the possibility that the minimum wage might harm the people it's trying to help uh, by reducing employment opportunities. So that when the minimum wage is put in place, it makes low-skilled workers more expensive, and that discourages employers from hiring them, and therefore the minimum wage may not be a good thing. He told me that after he suggested that, his fellow picnickers edged away from him on the blanket. <laughs> they, 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 uh, he, he felt the frost in the air. And so one view is that, let's call it, you call it uh, biases of various kinds, and I want to get to the specifics mm-hmm. of those in a moment. But various economic biases, what we would call, you and I would call bad economics, persists because one reason it persists is because if all the cool people or all the good right-thinking people or all the thoughtful people or all the compassionate people or all the people you want to be friends with feel the way they do, uh, you want to be part of that group. So the question then is, well, why do bad ideas uh, persist as the cool in socially acceptable ideas? It seems like a puzzle. Why, wouldn't it be better to have 
the good economics be the, the what right-thinking people adopt? Yes, that's actually one of the toughest questions, I think. So, we, we, although what you said reminds me, now, you know, the, so the cover of my book is a bunch of sheep. My colleague Robin Hansen told me, that's, that's actually too optimistic. You know, why? Well, sheep could all converge on the same good idea. Right. The sheep could all be going, you know, bah, get rid of farm subsidies, bah, you know, free trade. <laughs> but uh, generally, you're right, the sheep not only, uh, not, not only tend to agree with each other, but they tend to converge on things that don't make a great deal of sense. I'd say this is, this is really a pretty hard question. If you go and look around the world and over time, you'll see that the uh, economic biases that I talk about seem very similar over time across countries. There's certainly variation from time to time and place to place, but it's striking how you can read Bastiat and writing in the 1840s in France or Adam Smith writing in the 1800s or excuse me, 1700s in England and, or even Bambavark uh, talking about attitudes towards interest among the ancient Israelites. And you can read these people, and it seems like the attitudes that economists are, have been trying to beat out of their students, or uh, lecture out of their students, uh, <laughs> are really quite stable across, across places uh, over, over time. Uh, so it, it is quite a puzzle. Now, not normally when at least I see something that is very similar for people over time and across countries, I look to biology, look to evolutionary psychology. Uh, Paul Rubin, economist in, at Emory University, has uh, written a very interesting article in the Southern Economic Journal trying to explore uh, this issue. I think it's called Folk Economics. And I, I like to think, or at least I have, I have some reason to believe that I was part of the inspiration for, for this article. So I was very, very pleased by that. So he tries to come up with evolutionary stories. There's one that makes a lot of sense to me. And this is, uh, in the book, I talk a lot about anti-foreign bias, the tendency to become especially pessimistic about the economic effects of interacting with foreigners. Trade, immigration. Yeah. Sure, trade, immigration, even foreign aid. People are paranoid about foreign aid. I'm not a big fan, but I don't think it's going to make the sky fall. And you also don't think it's 40% of the federal yeah, budget. Yes, yes, I don't which... think, yes, <laughs> yes, I don't think that it's that either. Uh, again, a common view to think that one about 1% 1 of the budget is, is far larger. Now, there I think you really do have a pretty good evolutionary story, which is if you go back to living on the savanna, you're a small tribe of 20 people, and another tribe shows up, you would have to be pretty naive to say, another tribe has shown up, great, it's going to be nothing but chances for trade with them. Right, it's going to be wealth creating, this is going to expand our, our, our production possibility frontier. Yes, this, there's, you know, there's two obvious problems with that, one is, to a fair extent, you are just, uh, you are just, you are competing over a fixed pool of animals. So it really is a zero-sum game or maybe even a negative-sum game if there's a tragedy of the commons here, right? You know, if they start killing off the baby animals so there's no animals left next season, uh, that's not going to be very good. But on top of that, there's also the possibility for intergroup violence. Yes, like, uh, common. Uh, yeah. uh, primitive times are very violent. Uh, when a new tribe shows up, you've got to start worrying that you, that they may come and try to kill you, uh, at, at, at kill you at dawn. And, and take uh, your spears and, take, have, and have, get spear. more of the of the baby animals and, and grown-up animals. Yeah, so there is a, a decent reason to be afraid of foreigners under primitive conditions. The problem is it seems like we've transferred this fear to the Toyota dealership, even though I, I don't think that anyone seriously thinks the Toyota dealership is going to come and uh, come to their house at dawn uh, with, this, with a spear through the window or anything and like yet, that. And yet, the, that metaphor, all the, that particular metaphor is not used. Uh, the economic metaphor version of that is used, which is that they're sure. coming to steal our jobs, steal our wealth. Mm. It's a sinister mm. plan by the Chinese mm. to manipulate their currency to impoverish us. Those uh, myths find very uh, willing ears. And, and some of that could be uh, due to hardwiring. But there, you know, there's a broader set of, set of uh, examples. I, I think of these biases. Why, why don't we talk about those now sure, and sure. Then talk some more about uh, 
whether they're real and uh, the implications of those biases. So you have the anti-foreign bias we just mentioned. Mm -hmm. It's also the anti-market bias. Mm -hmm. Describe that. Right. So that's really probably the main one that economists and the rest of the world uh, do not see eye to eye on, or that's sort of the one that is most distinctive about economics is maybe a better way of putting it. So in, in essence, what you can say is that the general public tends to underestimate the social benefits of relying on the market. You're saying, you know, what, exactly, what exactly is going on? Well, a lot of it, I think, is that people look at the intentions of people in the market and see, hey, they're out to make money. They're greedy. Right? And this is generally true. At least there's a lot to it. People do not wait, ta people do not wait tables to serve their fellow man. Right. And most people start businesses, would like to make some money. And most businesses, if they saw a way to save some money, would seriously consider doing it. And if they could raise their prices higher, they would. Mm -hmm. That's right. So intentions in the market generally are not the kinds that we like to see in our mother, say. Uh, when she, you know, you know if, if your mom says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to clean up your scraped knee because I'm hoping that you'll take care of me in my retirement. Uh, or, or rather, it's a deal. Here's here's the contract. Yeah. I take care of your, your skin knee. You take care of me in my retirement. Most of us would not feel very good towards that mother. It's not and, appealing. Right? And uh, therefore, uh, you know, in the, in the market, when we see that people have intentions of this kind that most of us see as unappealing, uh, we think the social, that the consequences must be bad. Now, what economists have been saying for centuries is, think again. Think twice. Just because someone's intentions are self-interested, just because their aim is actually to make money, does not mean that the social consequences will not be very good. They could be bad, yeah, but yes, they, they don't it, have to be bad. Yes. It's an important distinction, which is mm -hmm. very difficult for some to, to yes. accept. And in fact, I think, I think most economists would say normally, under, the, under, normal, under normal market conditions, the economic consequences of someone trying to make money are that they wind up serving their fellow man because your customers, don't have to, your customers do not have to be your customers. If you are sir, or if you are not doing a good job for them, they're not happy with the way that, that that you're treating them. They're going to take their business elsewhere, or at minimum, they could just say, "Look, I don't need the service at all." You know, even if you're a monopoly, if you always go and cheat your customers, people may eventually say, "You know, I don't really want to pay just to be cheated." Right. I mean, it's one thing to go and pay a lot of money for something that's really good, where there's only one place to get it, but it's another thing to pay a lot of money not even to get that. So, so the economist, the economist view of this situation, of this motivational challenge, which, which is pervasive, of, of self-interest, is that, yes, people are self-interested. Yes, that encourages them to exploit their neighbor. But competition, the presence of alternatives, mm -hmm. protects us from that. In mm -hmm. fact, forces the, uh, the seller to become, if anything, empathetic. Uh, and mm -hmm. concerned about what yeah. would make me happy. I mean, empathy is a particularly good word because it's different from sympathy. Mm -hmm. Empathy just means putting yourself in the shoes of another person to feel what they feel. doesn't mean that you actually care. Right. Sympathy would mean that you actually care. Uh, in fact, uh, very often when I'm trying to explain a point of economics to my students, I'll say, let's try empathy. Let's try empathy. You know, in the literal sense, put yourself in the shoes of someone who's running a business and think what you would think if you were that person. And... Economists then are much more likely to see competition as a form of protection, uh, mm -hmm. uh, protecting us from the self-interested uh, behavior of the, the greedy would-be mm -hmm. exploiter. Uh, that argument has had mixed success with the public at large, uh, as you point out. Uh, economists are pretty comfortable with that idea. It's not unanimously agreed. There's a lot of disagreement in the mm -hmm. profession about how much competition might be necessary to protect mm -hmm. the consumer, uh, how, how well it would work, mm -hmm. uh, what are the conditions under which the information mm -hmm. necessary to protect the consumer would be available to enough people that the choices that mm -hmm. were available would protect us. But economists have a radically different view of market processes 
as a result of that. So that that's the anti-market bias that, mm-hmm. that the public at large has. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got anti-market foreign. Or anti-foreign. Make uh, work. Yes, make work. All right. So this is one where probably the greatest expositor of it is uh, Frederick Bastiat, who again wrote in the 1840s in France. He had a different name for it, which won't make a lot of sense to a modern audience because we haven't had a classical education. <laughs> But uh, he called it Sisyphism after the Greek mythological figure of Sisyphus, who was condemned in Hades, the Greek hell, to forever have to roll a boulder up a hill. When he finally got to the top, it would slip from his hands and roll back down again. Then he'd have to repeat the process. Lucky guy. He was fully employed. Yes, Sisyphus was fully employed, (laughs) never had to worry about a foreigner stealing his job, nothing like that. Now, Bastiat's point was that this is actually not a very productive economy. Not a productive economy where you simply do work all day, ending up at the same place that you were at the beginning of the day. And then he criticized people who wanted to actually implement policies that he called Sisyphism, uh, which, again, I call make-work bias uh, to be a little bit m- more accessible to a modern audience. But in any, any case, in both, in both, in both instances, the idea is the same. The, uh, the idea of make-work bias is seeing the economy in terms or seeing, seeing or rating, rating the success of the economy in terms of employment rather than production. Now, the problem is by this standard, 19th century America was a better economy than the, tw- than, 21st century, than the 21st century American economy because people were working an enormous number of hours in the fields. Yeah. And so plenty of employment in the 19th century. You're, you are up to your ears in employment. There's employment beginning at 4 a.m. and ending <laughs> at God knows when they actually finished at the end of the day. And so plenty of employment. However, their living standard was miserable. Economists, in contrast, generally judged the success of an economy by production. And by how much care. stuff is actually produced. We do care how widespread or how available it is, and there's a connection between yes. whether you have a job and mm-hmm. how productive you are. Right, although also worth pointing out that I think pretty much almost any economist will admit that the main reason why the poor are better off than they were in the past is because our production is greater, not because there's been, not because of redistribution, which, and, you know, if you were to have redistributed the, the production of the 19th century economy equally with no loss, of, with no effect on incentives... Still, we would all be tremendously poor by modern standards. I want you to repeat that because that's a, a yes. profoundly important point mm-hmm. that is often forgotten. So, mm-hmm. um, right or your, me? Your claim mm-hmm. is is that if we look at say a large uh, picture, meaning more than eighteen months, more than a decade, mm-hmm. let, let's go over a century or two, mm-hmm. and we look at the transformation of the standard of living of the lowest, worst off members of society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of that transformation is due to the size of the growth. Excuse me, to the growth of the economy and how widespread its benefits are, rather than through some coercive. Mm-hmm. Forced redistribution mm-hmm. via taxation. That, mm-hmm. is, that, is that the way? You, is that correct? Right. I mean, actually, my point is actually a bit, a bit stronger. So, I mean, I say, my my point is this. So, you know, just imagine that you go back to the 19th century, you see how they're living back then, you see that there's some people who are very, who are very rich by the standards of the day, some are very poor. Suppose, just suppose, that you were to take all the production of that economy and divide it equally between every individual in the economy, and suppose, just to make this a real gimme, suppose that there's no effect on production. Everyone can be paid equal amounts, and yet there, yet it does not cause anyone to stop working. It is no or way, work no less. Way. Yes, the output's the yes, same. Output's the same. By modern standards, that economy would be the people in that economy would be tremendously poor by modern standards, because there just wasn't enough stuff produced to actually give give the average person a decent standard of living. Okay, so uh, the right, or, or or maybe actually the the easiest way to see this today is go to go to a very poor country in Africa. Right, you'll see some people there have better standards of living than others, but if you equally divided the output of the typical country in Africa. 
the typical person in that country would still be incredibly poor. Yeah, by our standards. Yes, yeah. by our standards. By and again, even ignoring all effects on incentives. So we got off the track a little bit because mm-hmm. that was so interesting. But the, the point is, is that uh, anything that lowers employment is uh, often viewed with uh, concern by the public mm-hmm. when, in fact, two things that lower employment, uh, at least temporarily, trade and technology, in fact, make us wealthier, mm-hmm. certainly over time. Mm-hmm. And the benefits of that wealth increase are not narrowly enjoyed by a small mm-hmm. elite. And that's, I think, the most important mm-hmm. point. Uh, and yet people have the suspicion of, of those mm-hmm. kinds of changes. Mm-hmm. The fourth bias is? Uh, pessimistic bias. Oh, yes. Yes. So you know, this one is, is interesting because there's less evidence that it is cross-cultural or holds up very strongly over time. Uh, there's very good data for the U.S. Uh, you know, or, you know, for you know, for I say, I say for a couple decades that people tend to underestimate how well the, the economy is doing. So ba- basically, people tend to think that the economy is in decline, is doing badly now, and is going to get even worse, or at least they think this relative relative to what economists think, right? So actually, uh, you know, according to the data that I had for you know, the main data set for 1996, it's not actually the case that the average American thinks that their kids are going to live worse than they do, but economists are confident that their kids are going to live better than the, better than they currently do. Well, so, have, so it's relatively speaking that the public is pessimistic, sees things in decline. Well, I have some evidence on this you and I have talked about uh, before, which is when I lecture on economics to various groups, uh, and I think I've maybe even talked about this evidence on EconTalk before, I ask the audience often, what is the change in our standard of living since 1900? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, typically... Uh, there's a wide range of answers, mm-hmm. but the median answer is overwhelmingly consistent across different mm-hmm. groups, and these would be congressional staffers, journalists, uh, law professors. These are different groups that I speak mm-hmm. to on basic economics. The median answer is a 50% increase. The median answer is yes. that our standard of living today is 50% higher than mm-hmm. it was in 1900, mm-hmm. and there's usually uh, 10 to 20% of the audience thinks we have a lower material standard of living today than we had 100 years ago. Um, Now, you can debate. uh, Just it's a very difficult question to answer accurately, uh, but it's not a difficult question to answer imprecisely with some precision. And that answer is, okay. well, it's at least five times higher. It's probably 10 times higher. You Mm -hmm. could argue it's even 20 to 30 Mm -hmm. times higher. Mm -hmm. 50 percent higher is a bad answer. And these are educated mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. often very interested in public policy, which reinforces mm-hmm. your point, mm-hmm. that people have a very uh, inaccurate mm-hmm. uh, perception mm-hmm. of, of, of reality. Now, right, we, or we, not just inaccurate, because when, at least when most economists hear inaccurate, they just think you add on some random noise. Really, what's going here, what's going on in your example point. is is a bi- is a downwardly biased answer. Yeah, it's not just that they think the truth plus some di- plus the throw of it plus or minus the throw of a die. They 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 incline towards a not not just a, a an overly pessimistic answer. Really, say say an unreasonably pessimistic answer, an answer that is so far from the truth. It really is about as silly as thinking that foreign aid is fifty percent of the budget when it's one percent. Right. It's kind of a. Um, it, it does give one pause. Uh, which is the jumping-off place for your for your book? We've had uh, a number of guests on the show uh, here talk about uh, various types of ways of aggregating people's information. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could survey people and take the average mm-hmm. to try to get at the reality of something. You could have a betting market. So we've talked about the mm-hmm. wisdom of crowds. Uh, mm-hmm. We've talked about prediction markets. And but one thing we do know, which is that when the uh, crowd is misinformed, uh, mm-hmm. wildly misinformed, mm-hmm. 
these aggregation methods are not going to work very well. And you make that indictment mm-hmm. then of democracy. Uh, right, although I think we should, we should be a little bit more careful. I think there's one actually that would give us a very good answer, and that's betting markets. It'd be Betting, well, betting, betting, betting markets, I think, would give us a very accurate picture of how much our standard of living, for example, has improved. Because, first of all, mo- uh, people who don't know very much about economics would just stay out of the betting markets. Correct. And second of all, uh, there, would, there would be a decent number of people who actually know the answer who would put up an enormous amount of money if, if the odds were, any, were anywhere far away from the yeah, truth. I, so, thank you. Betting, you know, I mean, well, you know, and, and a shout out to my colleague Robin Hansen, who yeah. has been uh, promoting betting markets. Betting markets would be a great way of, of aggregating the information that's actually out there. You know, in, the, in the same way that betting markets are a great way to find out about, say, the quality of horses in a horse race, people who don't know horses don't bet. And if those odds get out of whack, uh, there are some people who know the score who come in and uh, plunk down a ton of money and get the odds back to a sensible point. Yeah, thanks for that correction. Mm-hmm. I, I really should have spoken about mm-hmm. uh, surveys and, yes, and, yes. and just crude mm-hmm. averages of, of mm-hmm. based on surveys. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have these biases among the public. One answer, of course, could be that, well, economists are wrong. Uh, foreigners mm-hmm. are dangerous. Mm-hmm. Trade hurts our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, employment's crucial. Mm-hmm. Um and well, uh, trade is a zero-sum game. Yeah. So, so mm-hmm. businesses who are, who are that are successful, or like such as Walmart or Microsoft, are just exploiting us, and and need to be regulated. Um, how do we know we're right and the public are wrong? Well, that's that's a very good public question. I have a whole nested series of answers that I'll give you. Probably the way the, the best thing to do, you know, the best the single best answer, which uh, comes later in the later in my book, and it's just one paragraph, but I think it's worth saying is, if that's what you think, go read the, go read the Econ One textbook. Come back and tell me what you think after that. Right? Now, admittedly, that won't change everybody's minds, but I, I do think that you know, any reasonably open-minded, intelligent person who, comes, who, who starts out thinking what most people think, cracks open an economics textbook and just gives it a decent, patient read with a, with a calm spirit, <laughs> will, will come away thinking a lot of what I, what I, what I thought coming into the, reading this book is, was just, is simply not true. It's silly. And again, maybe you won't be completely convinced. There's plenty, there's plenty of parts where you may say, I doubt this point or that point. But to read a basic economics textbook and come away and say, I learned nothing from this other than that the people in this field are morons, I think that would be a very hard reaction for a person to honestly, t- for a person to honestly take. And in general, what I find is people who have these views don't even really know what economists think. And you know, why don't they know? Because they're so hyper. They're so upset. They, don't, they, they are not able to sit there and listen to somebody else and, and just understand what, it, what, the, what is the argument that they're trying to get. So I mean, very often, actually, on final exams, I'll give it a give an essay question saying, "Here's four controversial things that uh, Kaplan said. Find one that you think is most is least defensible, and tell me why I'm wrong." Right? And that is that, that you know that that and now again on, on these questions, I always tell students, "I will I will never I will never downgrade you for for disagreeing with me." In fact, here's a question where you must disagree with me in order mm-hmm. to get credit, but I will downgrade you if you do not accurately describe the view that I've explained. Right. Or, the, so, or yes, or the or the alternatives. Yes, all right. So any, anyway, I think you know, you know just you know going to the economics textbook and reading it uh, with a calm spirit is probably the you know, the single most convincing way of actually resolving this dispute. But I don't expect that this answer is going to convince many people because it requires a big investment of time. And, and if you don't trust economists to begin with, to say go and spend twenty hours doing something uh, doesn't are, seem like a good investment. We but, are running yeah. that experiment every mm-hmm. year. Uh, in, oh, that's in the true. classroom. So. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. Of course, those those are students where we're paying them something to do it. We're paying them a grade, so yeah. a little bit easier. But you now what I say in the book uh, is I, I mostly take a different tack, and it's this. 
I say, look, we all have a presumption that experts, that when experts and laymen disagree, the experts are probably right. You cannot get through life without this presumption. You know, you know, when you go and see and talk to a mechanic about cars, a doctor about medicine, uh, when you talk to an historian about history, when you talk to, when you listen to any expert about any any subject, we all have a presumption that that the that if there's a disagreement between the expert and the layman, that the expert is probably right. Now that that's a, that is just a starting point. That doesn't mean that the expert is always right. There are some experts that you that you that may actually be in a fake field, astrology. Right? They're experts in astrology, but still their field seems to be fake. Uh, in fact, we've got a limb. Their field is fake. <laughs> but uh, now what I do in the book is I say, all right, look, uh, I'm open to the possibility the experts are biased, but here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. Tell me why. Give me a specific testable explanation for why you think that the experts are not to be trusted. And in the case of economics, there are two very common theories about why the experts should not be trusted. Uh, the first one is that, that, that economists are rich, they've got tenure, they're white, they're male. In other words, they've got self-serving bias. They think that what is good for them personally is good for the entire world. All right, so that's one story. Another very common story about why economists are biased is ideological bias. Economists are a bunch of, of uh, ultra-conservative Republicans, and therefore they think all these crazy things that no sane person would think because they, they basically are just confirming serving, what they thought already. They're serving an ideology. Yes. Grinding an axe. Right. So... Uh, you know, these are called, you know, first of all, self-serving bias, second of all, ideological bias. Now, here's the problem with these two stories. They're testable. They are testable in principle. They have, they have, actually, they actually have empirical implications. So if you think that the reason why economists have their distinctive views is that they're rich and have tenure, for example, let's go and compare the beliefs of economists to those of non-economists who have similar levels of income, civil, similar levels of job security, and see whether the belief difference goes away. Now, I happen to have a data set, uh, which was created by the Kaiser Family Foundation. It's called the Survey of Americans, on, Americans and Economists on the Economy. And this data set allows this very test. The punchline is that when you control for all these variables that you think might sway a person's beliefs in terms of self-interest, so control for income, control for job security, gender, race, income growth, right? You know, so an unusual variable, but still one that you might think might sway people's beliefs, at most, Throwing in the whole kitchen sink of self-serving variables uh, reduces the belief gap between economists and the public by 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 about 18% on average. That's one eight percent on average, and even that's probably an overstatement because a lot of the signs go in the wrong direction. Economists are less worried about about the effects of welfare on the economy than the general public, whereas the self-interest story would say that economists would overestimate it because they think right. they're not going to go on welfare. So the self-serving bias story, basically, at most, it is at most it explains a small fraction of the belief gap, and probably not even that when you take a look at the direction of the effects. Now, when you go over to ideological bias, there you realize that it cannot possibly work because the typical economist is a moderate Democrat. Which is shocking. Yes, the typical economist is a moderate Democrat. Again, I say, you know, if you look around George Mason, then again, you should be shocked because there there are very few moderate Democrats here. Or moderate Republicans here. Yes. Very few politically identified economists here, I would say. We're we're rather unusual. Yes. But nevertheless, you you could see how someone around George Mason at at least might get the idea that we are extremely right-wing in some sense of the the word. However, this is not true for economists in general. If you go to the American Economic Association meetings, there you will learn the great truth. The typical economist is a moderate Democrat. The weird thing is, is, is the typical economist is a moderate Democrat who thinks that downsizing is good for the economy. Yeah. Right? Typical economist is a moderate Democrat who thinks that supply and demand determines the price of gas. So, in fact, when you, so when you control for ideology, when you try to make a statistical adjustment for this, turns out that, it, that on average it slightly increases the gap in belief between economists and the public because 
the based upon his political views, the economist should be should really be quite anti-market, and he's not. So the the, the claim here, which we're going to accept as a given from for the mm-hmm. rest of this um, podcast, is that the study of economics and the identification of oneself as an economist uh, creates a result that all of us in the field are widely aware of, and I'm sure many listeners to Econ Talk are aware of from their own personal experience. Knowledge of economics gives you a set of viewpoints that are very different from the average person's set of viewpoints about Mm -hmm. how the world works. We like to think we understand how the world works. We might be wrong, but it's certainly we have a very different view Mm -hmm. of how the world works than the average person. And in particular, in the areas we're talking about, we're much more likely to see the benefits of, of trade, the benefits of immigration, the benefits of market voluntary exchange. Uh, we tend to see wealth uh, creation as a positive sum exchange, mm-hmm. as a positive sum rather than a zero sum game. So, my, my question then, let's now turn to the political uh, side. Sure, sure. And there, there are many, by the way, I, I, um, I want to commend. Uh, encourage our listeners to uh, look at Brian's book where he provides a great deal of empirical evidence on these survey differences between economists and the general public. Well, that's, now, that's right. Uh, you can easily get it on Amazon.com. That's uh, Brian Kaplan, <laughs> well, make, The Myth of the Rational Voter. Well, right? or, or, or actually, if you, want to, if you want to make your life even easier, you could just Google Kaplan, my name, C-A-P-L-A-N, and my name will pop, pop up second. I'm very bitter. There's a Canadian appliance company mm-hmm. that's uh, taking the number one slot away from me on Google, but still number two. But Brian, and you if you click on my page uh, in the upper, le- upper left-hand corner, there's the link where if you buy my book from there, I'll actually get 6% of the sales. So uh, well, even, even better. If, if you feel like I'm being undercompensated for this, buy it through my webpage and give me an extra dollar. Uh, but if, if that explanation is too complicated, you can go to econtalk.org where we will have a link. Oh, to, yeah, you to can do that book. too. You're listening to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, and I'm talking with Brian Kaplan about his much-hyped and promoted book here, The Myth of the Rational Voter. So the question now is, if voters have this worldview uh, that's very different from economists, a very uh, – what you call a biased worldview, an inaccurate worldview of how mm-hmm. things, uh, how policies work and what their implications are. What does that imply for what politicians will um, support and put in place? Well, uh, let me put What's your model way. of politics? Hmm. Well, uh, let me put it this way. Suppose that you are doing a national debate in front of the American public and you're asked your views about, say, whether you should impose price controls after a hurricane. One thing that you could say is, well, the American public thinks that we should impose price controls after a hurricane, but uh, with all due respect, I think you're mistaken. Here's why. And then you go and give a lecture uh, with uh, some supply and demand graphs uh, explaining how the price controls will create shortages and allowing the price to rise encourages, uh, encourages entrepreneurs to bring needed goods into the area. You could do that. Or you could look straight in the camera and say, we must do something in order to prevent speculators from exploiting human suffering and misery. And while my opponent says that he wants to do this, I'm the only one who really cares. My opponent merely says that he wants price controls in the case of a hurricane, but I really do. And then your opponent can say, no, 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 no. I'm the one who really does. He's the one who doesn't actually care. Right. So if you are the lesson of this is if you are trying to win the support of voters who think that a particular policy is a good idea, at least as a first pass, probably your winning strategy is to say that you favor what they favor and to give a very eloquent, passionate defense of the policy that everyone thinks is a good idea rather than being a pedant. You don't get up there like an, like an economics professor and say, well, here's one view, here's another view, let's think about this calmly and see who's right. Uh, you could try doing that and maybe it would work for somebody and if there's a politician or a future politician listening to this and you want to experiment and prove me wrong, you know, 
bless you, bless, bless you, bless you if you do this. But we I don't. don't but that, that's not, yes, but that's not very likely to be winning strategy. You don't make friends by telling people that they're wrong, even in the nicest possible way. You get people's vote by saying, "I'm with you." Right? So, uh, you know, you know the, the simplest the, the simplest version of politics that you get out of my book is if voters think that a policy is a good idea, then even if they're wrong, politicians are going to compete with each other in order to adopt it, and generally that's the policy that you'll get. Now, in, in private uh, markets for goods. Uh, say, the market for cars, if I think that um, uh, a, a car is a fantastic car that is not a fantastic mm-hmm. car, and I buy it, mm-hmm. uh, let, let's even take, forget whether the quality is high or not, let's say um, I have four kids, mm-hmm. and uh, my wife and I decide to buy a um, uh, a Cooper Mini, a little mm-hmm. tiny car, mm-hmm. and we would find pretty soon that it, it didn't meet our, our desires very mm-hmm. effectively, and mm-hmm. we'd probably trade it in for a minivan, which is what we have. Uh, some people claim, I would say a lot of people claim in, in economics and political science, that that's the way politics works too. Now, it may not work quite as well as the mm-hmm. economics market for, for goods, but it's the same idea. You know, we, we try things. If the politicians pursue bad policies, we, th- we can throw them out. Uh, we could impeach them if it's really a disastrous policy. And um, the election restraint works as a form of competition. There's competition among parties. So really stupid policies should be rooted out. And and voters should learn that, that these policies that you claim economists know more about than they do actually don't work. So why doesn't that happen? Well, uh, that's, that's a uh, very interesting question, Russ. The, the key thing is that you have to understand, well, what are politicians competing about? Right now, it may, you know, now if they were competing solely in order to get good economic results and that were the only thing that voters cared about, then I think this argument would make a great deal of sense. Um, now, we need some other assumptions about voters actually knowing which policy, which politicians are responsible for which outcomes, because otherwise you might wind up scapegoating a politician who had nothing to do with a particular policy. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, president has very little to do with education in this country, but you could throw him out because you don't like the schools. Well, well, that wouldn't give very good incentives because he doesn't have much to do with education. But More lately than before, but in right. general, that's a true yes. statement. Right, but, you know, but if, it were, if it were really true that... Uh, that voters only cared about results and they threw politicians out if the results were bad and purely on that basis, then I think there's a good reason to be optimistic about political competition. However, uh, suppose that voters also care a lot about policies. And I think that's a very reasonable assumption when you just see how much time politicians spend talking about policies. You mean policies yeah. rather yes. than yes. per se? Not, yes, not the results. They, they, you know, they, want, they want a politician who favors prohibition of drugs. They don't want someone, uh, they, and that is at least partly partly the basis on which they evaluate them. They might partly evaluate them based on the murder rate. But if there's a politician who gets the murder rate down while legalizing drugs, it is likely that that voters are going to throw him out because they don't like the they don't like the policy of legalizing drugs, even if it turned out that that were a good way to reduce the murder rate, as a lot of economists do. Uh, ne- nevertheless, uh, voters would likely likely be mad at that politician because he favors a policy that voters don't like. Now, if policy, politicians have to pete, compete in terms of offering policies that voters want, then the more competitive the race, the more likely you are to get the policies that voters want. And if p- voters are very persistently convinced that bad policies are actually good, then you're very persistently going to get politicians delivering bad policies because that is what it takes to get elected. Okay, so I'm, um, I care about my health. Mm-hmm. I care about... Um uh, the health of my children. Mm-hmm. I care about the health of my grandchildren. I don't have any yet, but I hope to have mm-hmm. some down the road. I hope that too, Russ. Thank you. So Good I want an innovative and highly nimble and wonderfully um, creative pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. 
And I want the government to put in place a set of rules and regulations that encourage that innovation. I'm also worried about side effects, presumably. But most Americans care about their health and, and the health of their children, so they mm -hmm. like pharmaceutical innovation. Uh, but you might also claim, as I think you would, that they like the idea of the government regulating mm -hmm. the safety of mm -hmm. drugs. True, it takes then 10 or 15 years to get a drug approved. True, people die along the way uh, because they can't get access to the drug before it's approved. True, that regulatory process discourages innovation because it reduces the profitability of drugs. Mm -hmm. So your claim would then be, which I find plausible but unpleasant, your claim then is that I just like the idea of the FDA, of the Food and Drug mm -hmm. Administration regulating drug safety. These other costs, I don't want to think about them. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to ignore them. When economists wave them about, uh, I'm going to give up. Or you'll scoot away, or you scoot away from them on the picnic blanket. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the question. You're gonna, you're gonna. I know you believe that people also care about outcomes. They don't mm -hmm. just care about mm -hmm. policy, right? Mm -hmm. They care about both. Mm -hmm. Right now, although there's there's another interesting point there. Uh, uh, it's interesting that what voters consider to be a result often is just a policy. So, for example, a politician will often say, "I'm a politician with results. I passed a new gun control bill." Now, to an economist, a result would be a reduction in the murder rate. Right. But to the public, it appears that merely getting legislation passed equals a result. So when politicians talk about how, I'm, unlike those other guys, I care about results, don't, you, know, you need to read between the lines. What they count as a result isn't really much of a result. It's huh. just passing a law. That's a good as, point. As to whether the law actually does anything or whether it's counterproductive, uh, much less likely to be on the table. Well, one argument that... that for these persistent biases that, that the public has that you don't really, I don't think you talk about in the book, is the argument that, well, the world's a very complex place. Multiple things are happening all at the same time. So it's difficult to get empirical evidence for mm -hmm. the efficacy of various policies. And so it's easy to sustain an ignorant worldview in the face of that complexity. Mm -hmm. That's a possibility, right? Oh, uh, it's, it's a very reasonable one, and actually, I wish that it were so. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you think it's not so? Well, I mean, well, here's the key thing. You know, if, if, the, if the problem were simply the complexity of the world, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to just dogmatically support whatever we have. It would make much more sense to be agnostic, right? To say, look, I don't really know. I'm not going to scoot away on the picnic blanket from someone who says something different from what I've already heard because I'm not actually qualified to judge one way or the other. So I mean, what I say is the rational strategy for a person who hasn't actually studied a subject is to be agnostic. I don't know much about the history of ancient Assyria. So if someone were to go and tell me that Babylon were the, were the capital of ancient Assyria, I'm pretty sure it was not, but if someone were to tell me that, especially if someone who had read a book about it told me that and they seem like an honest person, I would say, hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I wouldn't say, you don't know what you're talking about. I wouldn't scoot away from them on the picnic blanket. I would just say, look, I haven't studied this much. I'm going to have an could, open mind. Uh, could be. It could, could be. Now, if the person seemed to have an agenda, if it seemed like they had a reason to convince me, I wouldn't then go and believe the opposite. I think I would just say, well, look, you've got a motivation to convince me of this. I don't, I'm not, I don't have the time to verify what you're saying, so I'm, again, I'm going to stay agnostic even that you're talking, talking to me. And I'd say if, the world were like, if, the world, if, people more, if people basically worked like this, if people who hadn't studied economics were simply agnostic, the world would be just fine. The world, would be, the world would be just fine because on any given issue, half, people, half the people would, 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 would flip a coin and say heads, half would say tails, and then policy would actually be determined by the minority people who've read the economics textbook. 
Uh, the problem is that people who haven't read the textbook generally are not agnostic. They think they know the answer very often vehemently with extreme confidence, and generally they seem to gravitate towards the views that the textbook says are wrong. That's a great point. I, I, I particularly like some of the psychological armchair theorizing in your book. Uh, and one of the examples yes, is some, the, some of it is actually based upon research, research? but uh, uh, yes. Come on, <laughs> Most of it's just armchair. No, I know a lot of it's based on research, but, but the armchair theorizing is a very, very high quality. The logic's quite fascinating. And one of the examples you give along these lines is how, how when you're debating someone, say, about the effects of the minimum wage or trade policy or immigration, and you know the person doesn't agree with you, you work hard to, to be civil and pleasant. And the, and the mm -hmm. question is, why do you have, as you point out, why do you have to work hard at it? Mm -hmm. You're having an interesting discussion. You could learn something if you, you, you might mm -hmm. find, the, mm -hmm. since mm -hmm. this na na one naive view is that people care about truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they should be excited to learn that mm -hmm. maybe the minimum wage doesn't mm -hmm. help uh, poor people. Mm -hmm. But you make the point, and I think it's correct, that people don't just care about truth. They care about their worldview mm -hmm. in and of itself. So mm -hmm. that's this claim. Mm -hmm. So when they're in the voting booth then in this worldview, they vote their worldview. Mm -hmm. Even though, and this I think is, we, we haven't got to this yet. I think it's a key point. They vote for that worldview even though it's going to turn out to be not so productive for the world. Don't, let's get back to this question, why don't they learn? I want mm -hmm. you to talk about the free riding problem that's here. Sure, sure. Uh, let's see. Well, there's, there's two things to talk about here. So uh, uh, in the book, I'm, I, uh, I go out on a limb and uh, make a fair amount of uh, – make a fairly big deal about the analogy between religion and politics. So it, it's sort of the cliche of 20th century and, and uh, of course, now 21st century political analysts to say politics is the religion of modernity. Say again. Politics po is the religion of modernity. Of modernity. Of, mo of yeah. modernity, yes. Yeah. It, you know, in the modern world, the attitudes that people used to, used to feel towards religion, of course, many still do, but the, kind, the same kind of passion and, and, and dogmatism that you see in religion has been transferred over to politics. No doubt about it. Right? Now, uh, now of course, it seems pretty obvious it, to almost all of us that if you go into the, to a church and uh, you know, politely wait for the, for the ceremony to end and then raise your hand and say, I've got some questions. <laughs> Uh, generally, you do not get a very friendly response from People the audience. People don't say, well, that's fascinating. I never yeah. thought about yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Usually, usually, you'll get some stony glares, or may maybe they will pretend to, they'll pretend to be nice right. in order to convert you or shoo you out of the church. But usually, people are not all that happy when you start questioning the religion. That's why it's and, called a religion. It's faith. Yes. It's, it's mm -hmm. Or dogma. It's yes. the nature of it. And it's interesting that pretty much you can see the same thing in politics. But I'd say politics isn't quite as dogmatic as religion, but still, if you it's were close. to... Yes. Yeah, it's it's close, and it, well, again, you know, your mileage may vary. From it depends on some, you know some people are very reasonable about religion and totally unreasonable about politics. And so, vice versa, yeah. right? So, uh, politics is the kind of thing where people generally get agitated if you start trying to make them question some very key beliefs. And if you think about it, this is not a very good way to find out truth, right? It, is, you know, it basically amounts to killing the messenger, saying, "Look, I'm going to get very upset at anyone who brings any contrary evidence to my my way," which means that no contrary evidence, no contrary evidence, is very very likely to come your way. And if you care about truth, that is not the right thing to do. Okay. All right. So, uh, so I mean, you know, part of my point is just that you know people, you know, there, there's a lot of evidence that people really do care about their worldviews. I also have a, few, a number of quotes from a book that I like very much, "The God That Failed." It's a book published uh, in the 40s, uh, which, which, uh, which consists of autobiographies of ex-communists. Mm -hmm. So that everyone in the book is an ex-communist, and they tell their own story. Arthur a, a, Kessler, I think. Um, let's no. see. No, Cross, Crossman. Crossman. Okay. Yes, Crossman was the editor, I believe. Okay. So a recurring theme in this book, every one of these ex-communists, uh, or at least pretty much every, every single one of them, says it was terrible to change their mind. 
it was so painful. It was so horrible. Partly they lost their friends, but a lot of it was just the soul searching involved. Just saying, look, I have lived a lie. It's not a pleasant thought. Right. It should be a delight. It should be, oh, thank goodness. That's over. <laughs> oh, now I found out the truth. It, it reminds yes. me of when people say, uh, yeah, why don't you just explain how free trade works to uh, the congressman and then, then he'll switch over. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Most people have mm-hmm. a great deal of psychological pain on that kind of yes, a conversion. That's right. Now, once you, once you realize that uh, there is a big psychological switching cost, if you will, there's a cost of admitting that one is wrong and that the views that one has cherished for a long time are, uh, are, 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 are at least somewhat important to people's lives. Well, then, then, you have a, then you realize, well, suppose that a person could, by enduring the psychological pain, change policy. Okay, well, in that case, at least there'd be a trade-off. On the one hand, I'd have to give up this belief. On the other hand, uh, my standard of living would be higher, and you'd ha- at, le- at least there'd be a reason to make a trade-off and and to uh, and, and to weigh things one, to weigh one versus the other. And not just my standard of living would mm-hmm. be higher. Mm-hmm. The standard of living of all my neighbors would right. be higher. I mean, yeah. one of the one mm-hmm. of the very I think delightful things in the book is that th- there's a lot of evidence that people don't vote their narrow self-interest mm-hmm. the way they mm-hmm. they shop their narrow self-interest. Mm-hmm. But they don't vote their narrow self-interest, as you point out. A mm-hmm. lot of voters, for example, in mm-hmm. non-farm states, vote mm-hmm. for would, are in sure. favor of farm sure. subsidies. So people often in the voting booth vote what they think is going to make mm-hmm. the world a better place, mm-hmm. which would seem to be a good thing, mm-hmm. but right. it's not. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the way that I put it is this, though. Uh, suppose that you were, you know, so, so suppose that that uh, in your daily life uh, you, know, you faced a, a conflict between you know, be, uh, between. Uh, a, a belief that well, that didn't make a lot of sense, but it gave you some psychological benefit. Uh, but I suppose that that, that that living living that belief actually has some serious costs. So in the book, I give the example of a surgeon who's so egotistical that he would like to believe that he can operate on people very well while drunk. Right. Right. Okay. Now, the, the, you know, that's a belief that presumably could, would be think, very, very gratifying to a doctor's ego. But I think some physicians yes. probably have that, yes. and some many drivers have it. They think I can, I can drive mm-hmm. well while drunk. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, I, I don't think it's that many. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I think but, some. but, but it, it is. It's the kind of belief, however, where if you believed it, there would be a very high cost. A doctor who had that belief would probably be ruining his career in short in a, in a short amount of time. So he revises mm-hmm. that belief. Yes. Yeah, so at least there's a there's a higher cost of that belief. There's a greater incentive to exert some intellectual discipline and say. Uh, well, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Now, on the other hand, the voter in the voting booth, what are the odds that he's actually going to change policy by changing his vote? Uh, zero. Yes, uh, zero, or really, really pretty small. Let's just let's yes. let's make that mm-hmm, clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, in most elections, uh, the, the votes. This this what we're going to talk about here is very. Um, I find very difficult for people to understand or accept or both, which is that your vote doesn't matter much. Um, economists and political scientists have been saying this for a while. And the simple reason is that it's usually not a tie. And if it's not a tie, vote is not decisive. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's that's quite right. So if there's an election with three people where you're trying to decide where to go for lunch, what, it, it's often a tie and you get well, to break the tie. T- yeah, between yes. the other two. It's yeah. an often a tie between the other two and then you get to break the tie. That happens with three people. With 10 people, it's getting a bit less likely. With a thousand people getting very, very unlikely, and with a hundred million people, it really is like being struck by lightning most of the time. So it's 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 an extremely small chance. Now the uh, the, the the question I raise in the book is: suppose that there was a you know, there was a very small chance that you can improve your standard of living by thinking more reasonable about economics, but in order to do that, you would have to go and endure some considerable psychological pain and suffering from from doing that from, from rejecting your yeah, from, from, reject, from, reject, from rejecting long held beliefs becoming a pariah the kind of person that people scoot away from on the picnic blanket well 
uh, I'd say you know, the, you know, in, in terms of uh, your own self-interest, uh, that is, uh, it is not a very good deal to rethink your views under, under those circumstances. It's very unlikely that you're going to change policy. And on the other hand, uh, that you're giving up some, some uh, considerable psychological benefits in order to think more rationally about, about, about the subject. Now, I don't want to say that people actually first figure out the truth and then weigh costs and benefits and decide whether, you know, whether, whether or not they want to reject the truth and then either do or don't. I think a more, a more psychologically plausible story is just that if you are completely rational about a subject, you are exposing it to refutation. Right? So if you are completely rational about a subject, you are taking risks. You are, you are basically betting your belief against the facts uh, every, every, every day if you are reasonable, but I suppose you're unreasonable. If you're unreasonable, your beliefs are safe. If you're unreasonable, then you don't have to worry about new facts coming along and bonking you on the head because you just say, oh, I wasn't hit on the head. They're, the facts are not true, right? Or the people who, people who are spreading these so-called facts are lying, right? Now, so if you're unreasonable, it's a good way of insulating your, your beliefs. Now, you know, here is my claim. On, on questions where there's a high cost of being wrong, people, people generally are going to be more open-minded. They'll exert some more intellectual discipline. So it's not so much they first figure out the truth and then reject it, but rather they just are more reasonable about questions where the cost to them are high of being wrong because they, they can't afford it. You've, you've got to keep an open mind on, on whether or not a, a, a block of stone is going to fall on your head any minute. But on the other hand, as to whether or not closing our borders is going to make us richer, uh, what, what, what difference was it, does it make to you as an individual whether, whether or not you have a reasonable view about this, even if you got your way? You know, suppose that Pat Buchanan got his way and we did. You know, well, this is, this is unfair, but suppose that uh, a, cert, a certain non-economist that I know, not Pat Buchanan, but another one I know, got his way and managed to get his two favorite policies, uh, his two favorite policies being a Berlin Wall at the Mexican border and a naval blockade of Japan, or, or maybe, he wants to, maybe he wants to move the ships over to China now, actually, yeah, now that I think about true. it. Suppose that he got his way and our economy tanks. What would he say? I think he'd say, imagine how bad things would have been if we hadn't closed off the border and blockaded China. Right. Uh, that's one. Well, that's my complexity yes. answer. Mm-hmm. That, that, that mm-hmm. is the way to rationalize any It's not so much complexity because the complexity by itself would argue for agnosticism. Oh, I agree with that. Yes. You're right. What would, yes. what would we call that then? Um, yeah. mm, I don't know. The, fa- the fact that you cannot directly see it with your eyes. There you go. Right. Uh, so the, 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 yeah, the, the fact that it's, it's conceptual and requires some conceptual thought that it's not just perceptual. Yeah, you know? that's the right way so, to really, describe so, it. Something Ayn, Ayn Rand might say, well, it's a truth at the conceptual level rather than the perceptual level. <laughs> right, so. so the voter can persist in a bad view as a form of psychological comfort. You haven't gotten at this point, which I thought really was the mo- was the most interesting point, which is the free riding problem. Mm, mm, mm. So, so talk about that, which yes. is that uh, I don't have an incentive. Mm-hmm. The incentive to vote wisely just mm-hmm. isn't there, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm going to not vote wisely. Right. So, economists have a standard story for why there's some cities that where you have to wear gas masks to breathe the air. <laughs> Right, so not all the time, but from what I understand, Mexico City and Cairo, the air quality gets so bad that people will often put on masks just to make their lives bearable. Now, suppose that you see someone in Cairo getting into car and driving, and the car is polluting a lot. Would it make sense for you to say, you fool, you are just poisoning yourself? Probably not, because even if that car is polluting in a, in a usually large amount, how much of a difference does it make? How, or how much of a difference would it make if that guy quit driving and started, taking, and started, started walking or, or bicycling around? 
the, the, the difference in the air quality was still probably very small because the quality of air depends upon the average amount of pollution that millions of different people are putting out. One person doesn't make very much of a difference. That's and, the tragedy of the commons. The tragedy of the commons, or, or people, an, economists will also call it a free rider problem. Or an externality. Yes. So now, the pro- there's a gap then between yes. the person's individual mm-hmm. incentives and mm-hmm. the effects <clears throat> on a wider group because the costs of the individual's actions are not imposed on it, on himself, but on mm-hmm. society at large. Yes. Now, what I claim is that irrationality is ba- is basically political pollution. Irrationality. Irrationality is political pollution. When a person has crazy views about what trade policy would be best for the country, and he goes and votes for it, he's probably not going to change the outcome of the election. It's probably not because of that one guy that protectionists win, but it does just ever so slightly tilt the scales in that direction. And if millions and millions of people think that way, the result is going to be that a policy that's bad for everyone wins by popular demand. And so even though any one individual uh, you know, might very well rather live in a country with free trade because his living standard would be, would be better, uh, you know, he may still vote for policy that makes him and everybody else worse off because he gets this personal psychological benefit, just like a driver of polluting car gets a personal, uh, polluting car gets a personal convenience benefit. And on the other hand, the losses are spread out over hundreds of millions of people. Right? There is a small degradation in the quality of policy for millions of people. So in a, in a sense, then, what I say is that irrationality pollutes the blotters of politics. It, it, it creates a situation where, quote-unquote, by popular demand, we get a policy that is worse for most people. But you know, most interestingly, it's a policy where if you had two countries that were, uh, that were very easily, where you could easily move between one and the other, one had, say, free trade mandated, by, uh, mandated in the Constitution, so you couldn't vote on it and you always got it. Another one put it up for a vote. You could quite easily have people voting for voting for protectionism, and then being unhappy with the results, and then fleeing the board, fleeing over the border of the country that doesn't give them the policies they want, but actually gives better results. Yeah, I found that example in the book quite fascinating, and I want to I want you to explain that. So I'm living in um, in Mexico, say, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. has, let us presume, less free market, less. Mm-hmm. Uh, effective institutions, mm-hmm. and a politician who comes along and proposes in Mexico which a set of regulations or reduction regulatory reform to make Mexico more like the United States, your claim is it's possible that person could fail to be elected mm-hmm. because no person would want to right. – uh, we'll say this is Mexico. We want to. We don't want to be like the Yankees, right? We don't want to embrace uh, a market. Yes. Uh, neoliberalism. That's neoliberalism. That's an American. That's a, you know, that's an American idea. It's not for us, right? It's not for us, and yet find it attractive to, to live in the United States. Yes. The question then would be: Are they doing that blindly or knowingly? That just that that there's a, there's a contradiction mm-hmm. there of mm-hmm. of sorts, not mm-hmm. not a literal contradiction, but there's a mm-hmm. contradiction there of sorts. You're claiming that a person would be willing to vote for a society he wouldn't want to live in. in That's right, or, or at least when he saw the results. You know, he, he again he might say, "Well, I don't like those policies they have to have the, have, the, have up there, but I prefer, but uh, but they're so much richer there, so I'll go there." And 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 now why wouldn't he just vote for those policies? Well, you know, there there would be the psychological cost of basically turning your back on your national tradition and saying, "Look, we have our national traditions. They're not very good. They, these are not winning national traditions. There's another country that we can learn from that seems like they've been more successful, but that's that that is a very hard sell. That basically would require a person to you know, to to turn his back on 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 one of the things that makes his makes his country distinct. Something that he's perfectly willing to do to do to do for a few thousand dollars." Yeah, he physically turns yes. his back on it by, yes. by leaving. But, but, not, not, but not willing to do just for a very tiny chance of changing policy. 
Yeah, that, that's right, the important yes. distinction. Mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. So, so let, let's let's mm-hmm. restate that. So, I'm willing to move to the United States if it makes me rich, mm-hmm. but to vote for good policy that would only make me rich if everyone else voted mm-hmm. for yes. it is not worth doing because I don't mm-hmm. have any right. reliable way. That's right. In, in, bo- in both cases, in both cases, there's a psychological cost. But in the case of moving, you know you're going to get a ton of money if you if you get to go across that border and get a job. In the case of voting, on the other hand, the odds that your vote's going to change the outcome is really quite small. So there's just not much incentive to calm down and think. And here's the interesting thing. It really is quite possible for a person to be very rational in a lot of areas of life and totally irrational in others. Right. Uh, so, something that I, that when something, there's no yeah, cost. Yes, when there's no cost. Uh, it's, you know, it's not the case that irrationality is something that either you are or you're not irrational. There's plenty of people who have views about economics that I considered to be completely crazy, irresponsible, ridiculous, and yet they're very successful in real life. They run businesses. Right. They, they're they, good they, parents. They, they, they run businesses. They're good parents. Spouses, they're fine neighbors. Yeah. But the key is that in those areas where, where their rationality actually changes outcomes, they, they put on their thinking cap. And they try to get the right answers. And in these other areas where thinking, we're putting on their thinking cap would not actually change the outcome much, they indulge. So this raises the question, in this worldview, which, I, which, I'm, which is quite compelling, and Brian lays out a lot of, of really uh, powerful evidence in the book. Uh, it goes much beyond what we're talking about now. There's a lot of evidence for it. But um, it has w- one challenge to it would be this. Your claim is, is that people are rational about certain things that have no cost, such as... Yes, their ir- ir- irrational, yes. Irrational mm-hmm. about, about their economic worldview. The political system indulges that because mm-hmm. they have no incentive mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. vote rationally. And politicians cater to that sure. uh, because they want to stay in office, and mm-hmm. most people have these irrational mm-hmm. views. Economists are not the median mm-hmm. voter. Why don't we have more protectionism? Yes, that's a, that's a great question, right? and, and one, one that I address, 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 yeah. address later in the book. Yeah, so... If you, when you, you basically before you study public opinion, you're likely to look around the world and say, "What's wrong with what's wrong with policy? Why is policy so bad?" And after you go and take a look at what public opinion, uh, public opinion, you're more likely to say, "Wow, I can't believe that we're not in the Stone Age." Yeah, glass <laughs> and, is half is half. Yeah, full. The, the glass half really empty. is half. It really is half full. More than half full. And more than half full. You say, "Wow." You know, things are actually pretty good. I'm, I, at least I've got enough to eat. I've got a roof over my head. And when I see the kinds of policies that people want. Economy it, grows every year, yeah, uh, it, pretty it, much. Yeah, um, it's, and, and even though mm-hmm. we have lots of regulation and government is much larger than many uh, economists, not all, but many economists would like, economy works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, by, by, certainly by historical standards. That, yeah. that, that's, that's undeniable. So uh, what I do later in the book is try to figure out why are we actually overachieving? Why are we doing better than you'd expect a democracy to do, given what given what uh, most people are like? And go through, go through a series of answers. Now, one answer, which again is not likely to make me a lot of friends, but you don't care about friends, do you, Brian? Well, I, I do. I do care about friends, <laughs> but I care. I love the truth more. I love, such a, uh, such yeah, an yes. exemplar, right? Or, or I mean, the truth is, I like friends who care about the truth. There you go. Right, and if you care about the truth, I, I, <laughs> I'll stop by. Stop by. We'll get lunch. We could be friends. Right. Whether if you disagree, that's fine. I, I just about it to you. If we can have a nice, calm, rational discussion about an interesting topic, I'm happy. All right now, but where were we? Yeah, uh, you were going to tell us why uh, the glass is half full, despite yes, yes. all the yes. okay. ill-informed oh, yes. voters who get their right. way. Okay, so yeah, so one reason why, uh, why is if you take a look at voter turnout, tr- uh, voters, the people who actually vote, are not a representative, rep- not a representative sample of the population. There are basically two big predictors of voter turnout. One is age; the other is education. 
Now, it turns out that age and economic beliefs are pretty much unrelated. However, education is actually the single strongest predictor uh, in, in, this, in the data set that I have uh, of whether or not a person will think like an economist. And, and again, many professors will be surprised by this, but <laughs> more educated people think more like economists, a lot more like economists. Uh, you know, again, many people, you know, especially economists, say, "But that's crazy," because I know I go over and talk to sociologists, and then, and, and you know, they're they're all a bunch of communists. That's and, overly yeah, educated yes. people. You have to distinguish yes. between more educated and overly educated. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> what I would say is this: uh, highly educated leftists tend to hang out at universities. Right. They're not typical for the highly educated. One thing. Secondly, have you talked to people who dropped out of eighth grade? They don't think like economists. Yes, yeah. uh, they, you know, in gen they're, they're even worse. So if you if you talk to a typical college graduate and you said, "I'm shocked by the economic illiteracy of this person," well, you don't get out enough. Go and talk to a random sample, and you'll find that. The, but compared to what typical pe the typical person thinks, the college grad has, has has relatively reasonable views about economics. So the fact that more educated more educated people think more like economists and vote more is one plausible explanation for why things aren't as bad as you might think, because the people that politicians actually need to appeal to are relatively reasonable, strangely. Mm -hmm. right now. So, so that, that, that's one reason I think there, that there's actually uh, quite a bit to that story. Now, I think another thing, though, is that while, while I reject the view that voters only care about outcomes and that the politician who delivers the best results, regardless of anything else about him, will be elected, there, there definitely is something to the view that if, that if the economy tanks and there's a terrible war, that it hurts a politician's popularity. No doubt about it. All right. So uh, this doesn't mean that, you, that a politician should go and adopt whatever policies will maximize economic growth, because people might hate you for that, too. If those policies are very unpopular, people might hate you, and they might say, look, the economy's doing well, but this guy has sold out our country. He's evil. He's terrible. So basically, if you're a politician who wants to get elected, you need to strike a balance between doing what's popular and doing what works. Now, what this means is that if you were considering whether or not to go for protection or free trade, you might go and look at the polls and say, look, an overwhelming majority of Americans wants more protection. Therefore, I'm going to push it through. I'm going to make sure it happens. I'm going to claim credit. And probably if you do, people will like you. People will be happy at you for that. However, uh, if, as most economists would predict, you're going to have a serious economic downturn as a result, voters will be mad at you for that. And the net effect of you actually doing what, doing what the voters asked for could actually be to hurt you. Now, this doesn't mean that it would be a good idea to then go and take all of our trade, or take, take all of our protectionist policies and burn them. Because, uh, yes, the economy would do better, but people would really resent that. People would say, look, yes, yeah, the economy's doing well, but that guy's a traitor. That guy hates our country. He has abandoned our people. And I don't really, and, and when, we, when you consider that, the fact that the economy's doing well, and he probably just got lucky anyway, right? Probably he just got lucky, right. it would have happened anyway. So uh, I would think about the, the case of Richard Nixon when he imposed wage and price controls, right? So on the one hand, that's going to, going to hurt economic performance, right? On the other hand, uh, you know, it's a policy that was extremely popular. And when Nixon was, was adopting this policy, basically he had to think, well, hmm, on the one hand, I could, I could you know, not adopt the policies. The economy will, will do better than otherwise would. But people probably can hate me for not doing anything. On the other hand, I could go and adopt them, then the economy might do badly. Maybe they'll like me. On the other hand, maybe they'll say, what an idiot. He couldn't even make a good policy like price controls work well. <laughs> and so in, the, in, the, in this context, I often think about Gray Davis, who uh, governor of California, I have family in California. I often, uh, you know, as far as I could tell, the guy just did what the voters asked for. <laughs> he just gave the people what they wanted, and then they hated him and threw him out. 
Yeah. Let this be a warning to any other politician who, who intends on doing exactly what the people want. Yeah, you actually. <laughs> they may make it. They may burn you effigy. They may make a scapegoat of you. So be careful. Be careful. Uh, so you, you know, if what they want is going to be disaster, you might not want to do it. So you actually claim that politicians use their discretionary power to the extent mm-hmm. they have some mm-hmm. to sometimes do things that are good policy. Mm-hmm rather than what we often yes. think of the case where they would then exploit cons- voter ignorance. In fact, you know, one example of this that I, that I note is often the rhetoric of various policies mm-hmm. is much sharper mm-hmm. than the actual teeth. Yes. So, we'll, you know, we'll pass mm-hmm. some free trade mm-hmm. law with lots of side agreements for this, that, or the other. Whether those are actually enforced or not, of course, is mm-hmm. a different question. Mm-hmm. So you always have to wonder what, what the, uh, the reality is. We don't, we're getting low on time. I, w- I want to move on to an important area, which is market versus democratic fundamentalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you and I are often accused of being market fundamentalists, so mm-hmm. we just always assume the market will do a great job. Mm-hmm. As you point out in the book, every economist, virtually every economist, no matter how free market they're, they're, they're described, has lots of areas where they're willing to accept some forms of government, some forms of government regulation. Mm-hmm. The democratic fundamentalists, though, are eternally optimistic oh, yeah. about the virtues of government mm-hmm. intervention mm-hmm. and the opportunity to make things better. T- talk about that. Uh, sure. So uh, just just to clarify the terms, uh, market fundamentalism is a very common uh, charge thrown against economists. And the idea is basically guilt, you know, not exactly guilt by conceptual association. So we think about uh, literal fundamentalists as being people who think the world is 6,000 years old and don't believe in evolution. Basically people who have a book of a, a book of a book of questionable scientific merit, which they then interpret literally and insist is the absolute truth and in, in, in defiance of all evidence. So market fundamentalism is basically saying that there are people who look at the market with the same degree of dogmatism, the same degree of unwillingness to look at the evidence. Economists are often accused accused of this. And as, as I point out in the book, in fact, um, most market failure arguments were created by economists. It's economists who are the ones who sit around thinking. All right, look, we've said markets usually work, but let's let's come up with lists of counterexamples. Let's look around. Let's try to find ways in which we might be wrong. So in this sense, I think it's very unfair to say that economists are market fundamentalists. They, they, they are, relatively speaking, open-minded. They, are, they, they self-question. They are trying to figure out ways where they might be wrong. Now, on the other hand, uh, it is quite common for people to say things like, the solution to any problem of democracy is more democracy. Any problem, more democracy. An economist who said the solution to any problem of markets is more markets would seem kind of dogmatic. You know, any problem, always more markets? I mean, come on. I mean, you know, is, can that really be true? That, seem, that seems like a very hard line to take. But if someone says this about democracy, basically they get a pass. And people say, yes, of course. Yes, we need to have more democracy. That right. would be, that would be the, the solution. People, let the people speak. Let the people speak. Even if, the, you know, even if when you take a look at what the people think, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And even if the policies persisted for a long time. Now, you know, there, there's you know, sort of the, the most egregious form of democratic fundamentalism is the conceptual kind where you say, look, by definition, whatever democracies did is the best thing, automatically, necessarily. And, you know, and you say, well, what? How can that be? So it's like three people on an island and two of them vote to... Eat the third, Eat the third. Well, you could say that's at least in the interest of the two. Two of them vote to burn all the food. Uh, that was the good, that was the smart thing to do. So, there's got to be... Some cases where the majority you know, where, you know, where the majority decision doesn't make sense, there's going to be some external standard against which you can grade the quality of what democracy does. But in large part, democratic fundamentalism just says, look, democracy grades itself. Right? It, it gets to be a judge in its own case. Don't come with some external standard of whether democracy was good or bad or did a good job or a bad job. Whatever it did is 
by right. definition, the, the, the best thing. We have a, a, a fascinating quote in the book from um, William Grider, a, a well-respected mm -hmm. journalist. Here, here's the quote. After 30 years of working as a reporter, I am steeped in disappointing facts about self-government. Having observed politics from the small town courthouse to the loftiest reaches of the federal establishment, I know quite a lot about duplicitous politicians and feckless bureaucracies, about gullible voters and citizens who are mean-spirited cranks. These experiences, and up to this point, I think you and I would be totally with them, yeah. despite our lack of experience as reporters. But he then concludes, paradoxically, with the following statement. These experiences, strangely enough, have not undermined my childhood faith in democratic possibilities, but rather tended to confirm it. Mm -hmm. And you'd want to ask, yeah. how could that be? Well, yes. How could a lifetime of experience with how miserable the political process uh, uh, effectively changes the world for the better, after a lifetime observing its horrors, how could you not just become agnostic at best, but more democracy is, is the answer. It's, it's a strange view. But uh, I think it's, a common it's, one. It's, it's extremely odd. Yes, it's very similar to cults that predict the end of the world. The end <laughs> of the world doesn't happen and say, I'm even more convinced now. You're like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> you made a specific prediction that something would happen. It did not happen. Shouldn't that at least slightly diminish your confidence that you're right the first time so around? I and it should. We all have a childhood faith, I think. Not all of us, but most of us have a childhood faith in democracy. We have a, I, I call it a romance. Um, and very like few of us idea. have a childhood faith in, in markets, by the way. Right, that's Market, correct. Faith in, you know, <laughs> belief in markets is almost always an adopted view. It's an adult. It's, it's, it's one it's, that almost none of us were raised with, although... It's yeah. like single malt scotch. Yeah. It's something that, that comes as one, one grows older. Um, so we have this romance about, about democracy, which I think it's the, in many ways the best example of the irrational um, nature of, of, of this process that you're trying to, to claim, which is we like the idea that democracy works well. And one argument, of course, is that, well, it works better than the alternative. And as you point out in the book, it's not really the relevant point. Mm -hmm. The point is, what should be the scope of democracy? Mm -hmm. A better way to say it, I don't, I don't want to overuse, we're overusing the word democracy. What should be the scope for centralized, top-down, coercive uh, policies that are determined mm -hmm. by the electorate versus decentralized, voluntary mm -hmm. arrangements that we all choose on our own? And that's the key question mm -hmm. of society faces. Yes. And as I said, this is another symptom of democratic fundamentalism because when someone comes along and says, look, I have a little right, uh, I'm, I'm not happy with markets because of the following little thing. No economist will, will say, what are you, a communist? Right. However, when an economist <laughs> comes along and says, look, there's some problems here with democracy and there's some ways with, and, and I'm not very happy with the result, people say, oh, so you favor dictatorship. So like, well, hold on there. Or anarchy. Yeah, or yes, anarchy. Yes. You, 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 can, you, can have, you can perfectly well criticize an institution and think about, uh, think about changing it or limiting it or revising it without saying that you favor the diametric opposite. Right? And, uh, you know, and this is the point I'm making in the book. There's a lot of ways in which uh, we could, say, have democracy have control over fewer areas. We have the First Amendment, which has basically removed areas of speech and religion out of the hands of government. Is that democratic? Well, if you just say democracy equals what we have, I guess it is. But if you were to go and try to abstractly say, what does democracy mean? Democracy means that the majority gets, it way, gets its way. Well, then the First Amendment is undemocratic. It's anti-democratic. It's also good. Yeah, well, we're it's, a, it's a good idea. We're a republic. We're, we're not a, a democracy, right? We, we have the constitutional constraints. We have many other mm -hmm. institutional restraints on the will of the majority. But, but even those who like those restraints 
can still raise questions about what the proper mm-hmm. scope is for, for government. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, or you can say, let's have some more constraints. Right. Let, let's, sure. go, let's turn to the second to last page of Atlas Shrugged, uh, and, and we read Ayn Rand writing, uh, having, having a judge writing a new amendment. Congress shall pass no law abridging the freedom of production and trade. Right, that is an amendment you could have. You could argue about it one way or the other, but when you look at how bad the beliefs about economics of the public are, you say, hmm, I don't know, maybe, it will, maybe, that, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad idea. Yeah, uh, well, I like Hayek's idea that, that Walter Williams referred to in an earlier podcast, which is uh, Congress shall, every law that Congress passes shall uh, apply equally to all members of society. I think that would be a good, a good constitutional amendment. But uh, in closing, what advice do you have for our listeners who, like economics, uh, think that there should be a larger scope for market-based uh, activity? Uh, and uh, would like to help make the world a better place. What should we be doing differently as economists or mm. just everyday mm. people? Right. Uh, well, one thing that I that I uh, you know, much of my book is is a is an ode to economists, and I you know I, I am very pleased to be part of this profession. But I think there's one thing that economists and people who've learned economics uh, you know and uh, you know, generally do badly, and that's communicating. We're not the best communicators. Uh, very often, uh, you only have one or two minutes to get your point across, and a lot of economists just don't feel comfortable paring their message down to something that can be digested in one or two minutes. They like to say, on the one hand, on the other hand, and even if one hand has 95% of the weight and the other hand is 5% of the weight, and that just is not a way of communicating effectively in this world. Well, I like, so, what, I like mm-hmm. what you say about competition in the book, mm-hmm. that the, mm-hmm. the textbook version of competition is a lot of hemming and hawing mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. counterexamples and Probably mm-hmm. doesn't hold here, and, and perfect mm-hmm. competitions almost mm-hmm. never exist. But competition's ubiquitous; yes. it's everywhere, and mm-hmm. most people don't understand how it works. We mm-hmm. ought to focus on that facet of it, right? Right. So, in the classroom mm-hmm. and outside the classroom, right? So basically, what I say is, economists need to learn to be one-handed economists, especially the less time that they have to get their point across. Right? So I actually, I actually have three guidelines for how economists can become better communicators. Now, of course, when you put yourself on a pedestal, telling people this is how you should communicate better. You, so you're setting yourself up for a fall because what if I'm not communicating that well? well but uh, you can search these podcasts with Podzinger, and I think you would find Brian that your use of the phrase "on the other hand" is uh, common in this. You used it more than once, so uh, yes. get, giving advice is dangerous. But go ahead, yes. take take a chance. Yes, yes. So, so my my three pieces of advice are: uh, first of all, uh, for, for, first of all, just make it clear to people that that, econ- that that economists think something and the public thinks something else. It, it, very often, people dismiss the point that the experts disagree with them. So step one is make, you know, clearly state that you think something that is unusual, that is an atypical belief. Say, look, you know, throw, throw up a red flag. I think something that you probably don't. All right. Step two, just explain why. Explain why you think that the, that the economists are right and the public is wrong on this point. You can do it, do it politely, do it in a friendly way. But, but nevertheless, it's more important that you get across the point that, that you have some arguments than that people like you. Because you know, if, if they like you but they don't understand what you said, well, you've done something for yourself. You made some friends, but you haven't done anything for the world. And my last, my, 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 my last piece of advice, make it fun. Economics can, should, and must be fun. Right? So I've had many, many classes where the, where the professors just didn't try to make it, make it engaging. They bored people out of their minds. They spent hours and hours on national income and product accounting when a few minutes would have gotten the important points across. No humor, no wit, no attempt to appeal to the, to, to appeal to the students on, on, a, on a deeper level. Right? So uh, many, people, many people say, look, if people are as irrational as you think they are, then how are you going to persuade them? Say, so, look, irrationality doesn't mean persuasion is impossible. It just means that persuasion is more complicated than you might think in purely logical terms. 
right? So if you're dealing with Mr. Spock, facts and logic, that's all you need to do. If you are dealing with, 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 uh, with uh, who's it? Uh, Dr. McCoy, if you're dealing with Dr. McCoy, on the other hand, uh, you, know, you want some facts and logic, but you also want to bundle that with the right emotional content. You want to bundle it with, 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 you know, with you know, an appeal to reason. Say, look, you know, try, you know, try harder. Or you know, something that I do very often in my classes is something which, again, you might, you might say it's manipulative. I just think that it's good rhetoric. And I say, look, here, here, you know, I, I never tell my students, I'm right, you're wrong. That, that, that is a terrible way to talk to people. However, <laughs> I, however, I, I do often say, I put it this way, look, I'm, 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 I, I and the other economists that I speak for are right, and there's all those people outside of this room who are wrong, and you don't want to be like them, do you? You, you want to identify with the people in this room, the great minds that I'm introducing you to. <laughs> those are the people whose side you want to be on, right? And I don't claim 100% success, but I think this is not a bad way of teaching economics in a way that is both... Uh, I, I, again, I do not, I never advocate lying or deceit or misleading people. What I do say is, look, you know, give facts and logic, but don't only give those because that's not very persuasive. And I would also add that you should read a lot of Bus Shot, which uh, Abs- Brian clearly has. And yes. we have available at the Library of Economics and yes. Liberty in, uh, in its entirety. Yes. If you have to read either my book or Bus or Bastiat, read <laughs> Bastiat. I hate to say it, but it's true. My guest today has been Georgia Mason University economist Brian Kaplan, author of The Myth of the rational voter, why democracies choose bad policies. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me again, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.